HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating black culture through the complicated lens of agriculture. We speak to Carla Hall about her uncompromising soul food recipes. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture. We also hear from Gabriela Rodriguez at Harlem Grown's Youth Farm Uptown. About empowerment and, you know, community resilience building through this work. Um, food is kind of just a vehicle. Leah Penniman addresses feeling like an outsider in the farming community. I could count on my two hands the number of, of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm-hmm. And so I literally would go around little slips of paper and, and, and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. Tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. On today's episode, Carla Lolly Music is the food editor across all things Bon Appetit, healthy-ish, basically epicurious. And this more than qualifies her to write Where Cooking Begins, uncomplicated recipes to make you a great cook. But it's less about that skill set she possesses than the confidence she instills. As a YouTube cooking star as seen in back-to-back chefs, she blindly and brazenly teaches cooks how to feel their way through the kitchen, do more with less, and equips them with six simple cooking techniques, from which there are dozens of dishes within reach. For each and every piece of produce, pasta, grain, poultry, fish, soup, and bean, Carla will bring you closer to your own personal cooking greatness. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for writing this book. Oh, my pleasure. Because um, th- <laughs> this isn't just one of those cookbooks that you cook from. This is one of those cookbooks that you read and and you soak in so much information. Um, almost like life information aside from just cooking. It was a, it was a true joy to read from Thank cover to cover. Thank you so much for saying that. There were times when uh, it was not a joy to write. <laughs> so I appreciate that. I know that, that pain. Yeah, yeah. I know that process. But you have to go through all that to get to this point of understanding. Totally. And I think you did that in your career, too. Uh, you went to culinary school. I did. Uh, you spent 10 years on the line cooking here in New York. 
You were one of the original GMs of Shake Shack? I was the original general manager of the Shake Shack in Madison Square Park, yeah. That's wild. I'm going to have to look back at my photos. I was there on day one photographing for a magazine. Oh, stop. Yeah, yeah. Really? What magazine? It was called, was it called Crave Magazine? Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to have to look at my archives again. I was there when uh, Martha Stewart got out of jail and um, came and spent half a day with us making burgers. I mean, that's where I'd go. That's (laughs) If ever incarcerated, first stop. Shake Shack. Totally. But going through these pains, going through this process, um, you ended up at a place where it seems so easy. And you convey it in such a way that it seems so simplistic to cook such delicious dishes. It's it's not that simple, is it? It's funny because over the years when I cook for friends, I've had a lot of people say to me, wow, God, you, Carly, you make it look so easy. I wish I could do it. I'm like, no, it it kind of is that easy. And when I really um, wanted to dig down on the the techniques that you were mentioning was really sort of being honest about the fact that a lot of what I cook is seasoned with salt and pepper and, you know, starts with olive oil and finishes with lemon. And that is a perfectly great way to cook pretty much anything. And I think we, you, I think people get tripped up in the overcomplicating of it. I'm not saying cooking is easy, but, but there's nothing wrong with it. It being simple. Yeah, I've already adopted the acronym, the the SPC, the salt and pepper cooking, because often when you are going through your culinary education, it's first about, you know, gaining the foundational techniques, uh, building a very beautiful plate, and then it becomes overwrought and you strip things away. Yeah. So again, you've already gone through this, you know, process for us and you're at the point, you're at the other side of, you know, the the kiss method the keep it simple right stupid yeah 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 i think um yeah it was finding the confidence in the techniques is really important to me and then i think once you have a handle on that and understand that different vegetables can be treated the same way because of the similarities between vegetables and not because it's a different vegetable. So like understanding that a carrot is a crunchy vegetable, so it's going to act a lot the same way that kohlrabi or, you know, a cucumber or a radish or a turnip will behave. That is sort of the, the learning for me instead of, oh, it's a different vegetable. I have to do a totally different thing to it. It's like, no, just do the same thing you do to the other crunchy vegetables. It will be fine. I mean, is any of this inherent knowledge from you know your youth your childhood the way your family cooked or was it gained through eventually becoming a food director I think it was a lot gained through the experience my I grew up in a food very food forward family and my mom is an amazing cook and also wrote about food and edited cookbooks for a living so we ate really well but I didn't cook because she was cooking (laughs) yeah I think some people grow up sort of learning how to cook at the elbow and I was sort of like I'm just gonna be here at the table because everything you got this mom (laughs) yeah I was like everything you're doing seems to be working out just fine so it was more I think I knew how to eat um and that when I did start cooking having a a a understanding of what good food tasted like really guided me, but I didn't understand the techniques really. Um, And that was, you know, something that, like you said, you learn foundational 
um, techniques through becoming a professional cook, going to cooking school, working on the line, and then repetition is like everything. So I've been saying, you know, this is a thing that happens when you get old too. You're like, I have a lot of experience yeah. now, you know, it's like the upside to um, being 20 years older than I used to be. And, and you give yourself the liberty to screw up. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the Bon Appetit test kitchen because that in of, of itself is a phenomenon right now. Uh, everybody's a YouTube star. I mean, but it's weird. It's wonderful, though. <laughs> it's such a great time that I'm not saying that you aren't a celebrity in your own right, but that anybody can be celebritized. Mm-hmm. But you guys have done it with such humility. Thank you. It's very, um, we started doing video probably two and a half years ago. And that first year was really very, felt very different because we were all, um, doing it for the first time. And when someone puts a camera in front of your face, you don't act like your normal self. So again, I think that, you know, people are catching up with the YouTube channel now and we've been doing it for a while. And that also is through repetition, just sort of being yourself, you know, I feel like writing is like that, you know, when I first started writing for the magazine, I would not write in my normal voice, because I thought I should write in some way, right, there was some style or some other voice that I was um, chasing. And I think when I started doing video, it was the same thing. It was like, should I be like, you know, Mary Sue Milliken, that's a great goal, but it's a very different style. Um, and then you sort of do it over and over and we kept getting feedback. Just guys, just like be yourselves, like be your normal self. Cause that's captivating enough. That was like a great, um, permission to get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that tone has really driven your taste too. Um, the way you explain things, but also your sensibilities as to what you like to eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to start with this article from March 2018, and you wrote it, and it was about the new essential recipes that define the way we cook now. Mm. This is a year ago, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's it's really interesting to reflect back and see little gem wedge salad with tahini ranch, smashed cucumber salads, green beans, uh, greens and beans with fried bread, kimchi, fried grains, lemon chicken thighs, cauliflower all the ways, crispy skinned fish with herb sauce, brown butter basted steak, uh, fruit galette uh, with mm-hmm. a buckwheat crust, and swirled sesame tea cake. Yeah. I see a lot of that in your book. Uh-huh. Not exactly. There, there is an evolution. Sure. Um, what are the common threads of what you like to eat and what you like to cook? Um, well... It's really interesting because as a as a test kitchen editor, sometimes you are making things that you might not love to eat. You know, um, I spent the better part of last week working on a recipe for risotto halfway through realized like I maybe don't love eating risotto. Like I know it's a great recipe. People want it and they're looking for it. It's therapeutic to stir. It's therapeutic <laughs> to stir until you do it like three days in a row. And then I also realize that um, it's not my thing. Like when I really dig dig into it, the last time I made risotto was after I got home from Sicily because I wanted to make arancini and we didn't have any leftover risotto. So I was like, I'm going to make the risotto so that we can make the arancini. It was like a completely different end game. Um, that's a different kind of exercise that can be a little bit torturous. And uh, when I was working on the recipes for the book, I really did go back and really think about the food that I make. And so the book is really a reflection of the food that I love to eat, the food that I make all the time, some variation of a thing I've made dozens of times at home, you know, and 
thanks to Instagram, I've like taken a picture of pretty much everything I made for the past three years. So it was a, a great way for me to start that was real and like um, authentic to me. It wasn't sort of coming up with just recipe names and filling it in. I think when we worked on that feature for Bon Appetit last March that you were rattling off those recipe names, that also was um, one of those chances to do a story that was less about having a story conceit and needing to like figure out what the right angle is. And that all came from what do we really cook? What do we really eat at home? And I would be crazy to say that what I've done working at Bon Appetit for seven years hasn't, you know, crossed into my home life and back and forth. I think there's, um, it's a, it's a very back and forth relationship. I've learned so much from the people that I work with. And then I've also brought recipes from home into the magazine. So yeah, it's not weird that there's some of the same techniques that I'm in love with, you know? Yeah. Uh, I I've seen your book already referenced to as laid back cooking style. Oh, cool. W- would you consider that, uh, you know, a superlative? Um, definitely. Yeah. I think that the, the me at my worst cook is being nervous, uptight, trying to impress someone, overthinking it, overcomplicating it. I mean, I definitely do things that, you know, my husband has to talk me down from the ledge. He's like, you're, are you doing too many dishes? And I'm like, but it's going to be great, you know? (laughs) And he's like, you do this sometimes. And then you're like up till three in the morning. So do you want to like take a dish away? Um, That's a little bit different than I think when I first started, you know, cooking and entertaining at home, I was trying to do fancy or, you know, and I think that as, as like restaurant cooks, we go through that where good food was elevated or it was fancy or expensive um, and sort of, I think I did more of that as a younger cook because I was trying to do the restaurant food that I was, you know, surrounded by all the time. And now I'm really um, motivated by the by home cooking. Yeah. I mean, you even say in the book that this isn't the food that you cooked in restaurants because what you'd cooked there, uh, there was no transference as to what you wanted to eat at home. Uh, A chef once told me, uh, you know, it's fine to be aspirational. Just don't be an ass about it. Right. No, it (laughs) stripped that stuff away. But I want to get back to this tone that you've developed uh, along with these threads that, you know, uh, kind of satisfy your palate. Um, The way you explain food and talk about food and write recipes um, is in such a way that it's, it's, I don't know, uh, it's so democratic. Uh Uh-huh. And I've seen this in these great videos you do called Back to Back Chefs. One of my favorites is with Natalie Portman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just because cracking those coconuts. uh, Right. (laughs) I was so scared for the both of you. I know. It was, I, the, so I've told the story, but not that many people know the, we had the, we had the coconuts, we had them set up. I had figured out this like anchoring system and a measuring cup, which in retrospect was like kind of crazy. Wouldn't necessarily do it that way now, but, um, the coconuts are anchored and I've got this, you know, hammer in my hand and there's a camera directly above me and I start whacking the coconut and the second strike down on the coconut, I whacked into the base of my thumb, like right at the base of that joint and was just like, rip, (laughs) keep going. (laughs) And so got through that with, uh, you know, a giant bruise on my hand. Um, but she was a good sport. But you're explaining to people in the blind because you were literally back to back from somebody and teaching them how to cook. And in 20 minutes, they're able to make this great dish. Um, yes, there are photos in this book, but do you feel like writing a cookbook is 
very similar in the same vein as as back to back chef. Um, yeah, in a lot of ways, in ways I, d- I never would have anticipated that there was going to be a correlation between the two of them. But I love describing things to people and have learned in that exercise of being back to back with someone. I don't know what they're doing. So in order for me to prepare for those shoots, I always cook through the recipe alone um, and to get a sense of timing and sort sort of like figure out what those key moments are going to be and and think a little bit about how I'm going to describe it. But um, when you're, when you're doing it in that way, when I cook through something, I think about exactly what, what am I looking at? How am I holding it? What is happening? What are the sounds? What are the key points that I can then cue this other person to? And you really have to, you know, for someone who does things fairly automatically, it makes me slow down and think about, you know, the words, like, what are you really doing? And also sort of turning on your observation, which I think is such a key part of cooking that people are looking at recipes and they're looking at the pan, but they're maybe those two things aren't necessarily coming together. So when I was writing the recipes for the book and I would cook alone food that feels very instinctive to me, but I'm taking notes now and I'm trying to create a recipe. Um, it was really fun to like really look at the pan and like, what are the sounds that it's making and what's a good way to describe that to someone? And, you know, what does it look like? How do you know? What should you taste for? Um, And being as conversational about that as possible in the recipe language. I think recipes can sometimes be very technical language, pretty cold, like textbooky, scientific. And I wanted it to feel like someone was coaching you through it. Yeah, I've seen you in that facet with two distinctly different people, and that's with Ms. Cracker and Ina Garden. Mm-hmm. And the difference between making latkes and these chocolate pecan scones was that Ms. Cracker uh, is so well-adjusted in front of the camera, but not necessarily in the kitchen. Right. Um, whereas Ina, I saw you fangirling her a little bit. Yeah. Um, and and I, I mean, I was too from afar. Uh, the way she would scrape the cutter on the table to pick up a little bit of flour I thought was ingenious. What did you learn from those two interactions? What lessons did you take away? Oh, it's such a different thing. Miss Cracker, first of all, is like one of the most incredible people that I've met over the past um, year. And she is so fun to cook with and and um, is such a performer. And Ina has this like incredible professional authority and demeanor about her. And I just felt like I was in deference to... Ina's vibe whereas with Miss Cracker I was like trying to keep up with her theatrics but also like we had to make food together mm-hmm. you know um so it was just a different um just a very different way of going about it and I wanted I really wanted to be there for Ina to teach me her tips and tricks and with Cracker it was more uh I'm trying to show her and demonstrate for her the tips and tricks um I'd like to see them in a video together, actually. I would would love to see that super cut. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, I I guess it's it's a it's a kind of a coaching and a cheerleading for one. And the other one was just really Ina's such a pro that we were we it went too fast. Like I kept trying to find moments in that video to to slow down because she does this. How many seasons of her show has she done? She walks on, she does it, she gets it on the first line, and I was like, "Wait, it's oh, it's going to be over too fast. We got to go back." <laughs> well, that's why you guys had drinks out of uh, exactly. Tablespoons, that's you know? right. She had never had mezcal, really, ever in her life. 
See, I know she's located in a specific part of Long Island. Yeah. And I, I know the she's... The Hamptons. Yeah. Yeah. They have mezcal there yeah, now. Yeah, they have, they have, But it, it's so funny to introduce something to somebody that you, you've always had such high acclaim. Totally. In world. And I think that's like, that keeps happening for me in food. That's something that I hope never goes away is that you, there's all this new, new things to taste or to do that you haven't done before. Like there's no end to culinary learning. That's what is so fun about it. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and okay. come back to where cooking begins with Carla Lolly music. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back. This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. Founded by Shuichi Kotani, Worldwide Soba offers noodle consulting services in addition to supplying a variety of tools for wannabe noodle makers. Want to take a class? Worldwide Soba has it. Need a traditional Japanese soba knife? Worldwide Soba has that too. To learn more, visit worldwide-soba.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with another three-named person, Carla mm-hmm. Lolly Music. And we're going to start with where cooking begins. I mean, where does it begin? Yeah, where does cooking begin? I think for me, the answer to that has to start with the food. I get excited about cooking because I either have a craving or because I have something good to eat. Um, and there's a big part of this in the book for me was sort of picking out food first and figuring out recipes later. And, um, I think that's why I devoted a big chunk of the book to techniques because you actually don't need a recipe to cook. You can cook anything with the simplest seasonings that you already have in your house and cook them really well and make them really excellent. And it's not a recipe. It's just knowing how to cook something. You, you know how much that still freaks people out, right? Oh, totally. I can't do it. You yeah. got to give me a recipe. So how do you do it? How do you instill that kind of freedom from being bound to a specific recipe? Yeah, I tried to do it in the book just definitely with simplifying. Um, you know, when you really get down to it at the end of the day, there's not that many ways to cook things and they haven't changed in hundreds and hundreds of years. So... The methods, like if you take sous vide out of the equation, right, because this isn't really a home cook technique, even though more than it used to be, um, you know, there's like the wet ways to cook things, braising and steaming and boiling, and the dry ways to cook things, um, you know, sauteing and roasting um, high heat and low heat, and then confit, which I never really got to the bottom of. Well, confit kind of is like, sous vide in a sense. Yeah, 
I just never got to the bottom of like, is it a wet method or a dry method? But it doesn't really matter. It's a gentle cooking method. Yeah. And sort of making people realize that even all the recipes, the billions and billions of recipes that exist online are going to include within them one of these six ways of doing things. So sort of like get rid of all the other stuff about how you should have chopped it or what size it's supposed to be or what random spice that you don't have that you're supposed to go get and just sort of forget about all of that stuff and understand how to take something from a raw state to a cooked state. And I almost included um, raw preparations when I was going through the techniques before I started writing. I was like, well, Raw is a way like, (laughs) you know, that you can you don't have to cook everything. There's a lot of times that, you know, you're taking a raw ingredient and just doing a minimal amount of something to it to make it a more delicious version of itself, um, which is like putting salt on a cucumber is like the simplest example of that. So anyway, shaved vegetables are not um, a basic technique, but all the other ways are just understand that, like taking something from the state that you purchase it in to like the state that you want to eat it in the thing in the middle is technique salt pepper fat and lemon juice especially confit uh which literally means to cook under fat and what i love about those six different ways of cooking that you've illustrated in the book is that you also give a dozen examples afterwards Mm -hmm. and it's so varied from whole garlic in the clove to you know a a gorgeous confit duck which i know you've been practicing since you've written this um these canned tomatoes as well, canned whole tomatoes. Right. But that that it doesn't limit to you to any specific Yeah, I really, protein. that was like very, very on purpose in the technique sections. There's um, how-to step-by-step photos that I wanted to make look like you were really in a kitchen and not in like a, you know, like a operating room. There, a lot of times technique photos just go like super white or stainless steel. It's like, we're not doing surgery. We're still in the kitchen. Um, so after every one of those step-by-step photos, there's this grid of ingredients. And I really wanted on purpose to choose things that you don't necessarily associate with the method. So confit, if people know what it is, they're like, ah, yes, duck confit, or they've heard of like chicken thigh confit, or maybe, you know, garlic under oil. Um, But for me, it was a real exploration of like trying, we just tried a bunch of different things and like they all work so the canned tomatoes was one of my favorite yeah, I, I, things I'm of dying just to try that. draining them covering them with olive oil roasting them really low and slow and you get you know you transform the tomato but then you also get this incredible tomato infused olive oil that's what's so good about the lemons too right like confiting lemons uh using what you think is a subsidiary thing, but reusing that olive oil so many times. Is, totally. It's a and I would thing. never tell someone to put three cups of olive oil over something and then you just use it as a cooking medium and then, exp- and then discard it afterwards. Like that's crazy talk. But then you have to have room in your kitchen for it. And I know even before cooking begins in your mind, it begins with shopping really. Yeah. And, and this idea of small batch cooking and shopping for only, you know, what you'll consume in those few days. Uh, talk to me about how, trim your kitchen is how you know uh, how, how little you might have in your fridge but how big of shops that you might do yeah I this has been a real transformation over the years for me too because um as a you know as a cook I never had anything in the kitchen because you don't cook on your days off and then as a mother um I have two sons who'd you know eat plenty um there were many times where I felt like we just had to have so much stuff in the house at all times because I was 
feeding these people. And that really over time transformed to me to this small, this idea of small scale cooking, small batch cooking. Um, I don't meal plan. I don't cook ahead. I feel like all of those techniques, I know that people love them. And so no, not to knock anybody, but for me, they always led to leftovers that ultimately led to waste to a refrigerator that was so packed full of food that I couldn't get anything else in there and things weren't cooling efficiently and greens that are smashed together in the produce drawer wilt and then get soggy and then turn to liquid and then it's the rotter. Um, so it was very gradual and over time that I really started to learn that the best way that I could cook, and it's not that I have stripped down everything in the kitchen. I've got a drawer full of canned beans and canned tuna and dried beans and several different kinds of grains and pasta and nuts and, you know, nutritional yeast and all of the condiments. It's just that I don't have like four of all of those things anymore. Like you don't need seven cans of beans. You need the two or three to make the choice about what you want for dinner and keeping more in the house than that just ends up being like a surplus of stuff that makes it hard to find other things, hard to put things away, too much lugging, too much schlepping. Um, So I turn to a kitchen that I keep minimally stocked that I mostly shop for things online that come in a bag, a box, a jar, or a can. Anything with a cellophane window, (laughs) you can buy that stuff online. And produce, meat, fish, bread, um, I pick out in person, make a few stops per week on my way home. Um, And even though I might go to the store more often now, like I go to my local place um, and get my stuff from my my small scale place in my neighborhood, and I use online um, shopping for the things that are the same. So like Goya beans are fantastic. They are the same no matter who you get them from. And so for me, it's just worked out to to order those things online and pick out the things that really matter that change from day to day that you want to like give a smell test or or a sight test or talk to the person behind the counter before you buy. Um, and that's just worked. It's really worked out for me. See, I'm using this interview as well as this book as a therapy session for the way <laughs> I stock my kitchen. Uh-huh. I've tried to trim down. And uh, we have friends that joke that we have the most food that any of our friends have, but the least to eat. Okay. Um, you know, from the, the spices, the pantry, etc. And we're, we're trying to do a much better job at, you know, staging our kitchen. So it looks like we have food at our house. Right. But uh, we do overbuy sometimes. And yeah. I love that you had a passage in there that you, you went to the Fort Greene Farmer's Market and, you know, the, the Swiss chard or the greens were tickling your neck on the way home. Mm-hmm. And they didn't fit in the fridge. Right. So that's why you wilted them and poached an egg. Exactly. And this is how wonderful and whimsical this book can be. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, I've I've set out to do this. It's like, this is what I have and this is what you can do with it. And let, let's dig into these recipes Great. starring produce. Okay. Um, one, I do see a lot of, you know, allusion back to that March 2018 article and some of the things here, like spring lettuces with anchovy cream or or chicories with garlic bread croutons, even the salted cucumbers with mm-hmm. ginger and garlic. It, it seems like there are mainstays that you do iterate on, but are a necessary part of your repertoire. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've always, always like those wilted greens so that um, that 
really came about on a day when I couldn't resist the Swiss chard. And you know how when you go to the farmer's market, the bunches are like three times as big as anywhere else. And they were gorgeous and abundant. And I wanted to use the stems and started those first. But also, I just couldn't get it in the fridge. So I was like, we're having Swiss chard for breakfast. Like, that is just what is happening because I'm not going to put this away. Um, And using the stems, using the leaves and cooking. I remember that day just cooking the Swiss chard in a way that was immediate and I knew I was going to eat it right then and there. It wasn't for some other thing. And I really wanted to give people the idea that when you're cooking, you can lose yourself in the cooking of it instead of this trying to follow a recipe and going back and forth. I mean, I think the most fun that you will have as a cook is when you don't have to look at the recipe anymore. So I hope people will use the recipes like that wilted Swiss chard, the braised. It's like got a lot of olive oil and garlic and the Swiss chard stems and the leaves. And you will make it once and you will make it twice following the recipe. But the third time, you're not going to look at the recipe and maybe you're going to now be confident in the technique and add something different or remember that you like it with something spicy. You added hot sauce the last time you made it. So put chili flakes in at the beginning. Um, that was That's the idea behind that. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite recipes in the produce section is leeks with potato chips and chives. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily because I've had that dish before. I haven't. But that you say everyone should be topping more things with potato chips. Uh, talk to me about how that made it into the book and, you know, uh, why you can have this sense of, you know, childlike fun in the kitchen. Yeah, the the potato chips in um, as a topper came from the revelation that you could put potato chips in sandwiches. So that was a thing that I had done probably before I had it at, at number seven sub, but it was like, Ooh, potato chips in a sandwich is like, they're crunchy. They're sturdy. They hold up their crew. They're like little croutons, but somebody made them for you. And, um, the reason that they work in that dish with the leeks is because the leeks are kind of charred and then braised and they're very, soft and meltingly tender and um they've got that you know texture to them and i just wanted to top them with something that was both salty but also crunchy and using something that just comes out of a bag but is minimally you know kind of messed with like i've made my own potato chips don't get me wrong but i'm much happier to just buy a bag of cape cods those are your go-to i love cape cod kettle yeah and dark I, rustics um yes but not the og they brought out the original um formula last summer i think it was and i was like yeah these are the ones yep. yeah but i love the kettle brand salt and vinegar in the same style but their salt and vinegar is like really really good get on yeah that. <laughs> uh, another thing that feels very new england to me is the blt i don't know why i associate i cooked in Boston and Cape Cod for years. Um, and I, I consider myself a BLT aficionado mm-hmm. and I've, I've done something very similar to what you've done and fried eggs in the baking mm-hmm. grease. And I've never seen it in a uh, cookbook. Before. Really? Yeah. Probably because people are like, everybody already knows this. We don't yeah. <laughs> no, but everyone doesn't, but it is one of those things that transform uh, something as simple as that acronym sandwich into, you know, in, an elevated but just as simple way of cooking that. Yeah. I mean, you don't need a fried egg on your BLT, which is why in the book we sort of present it like um, almost like a sandwich buffet because there's no way to make BLTs for a crowd and 
be able, and not have them suffer like at home. So putting everything out and letting people make their own, you might you might want the egg, you might not. I really like that like extra bit of texture and the like self-saucing situation from the yolk. Yeah, I just had this wonderful and horrible visage of what a sandwich buffet might look like. And I'm so <laughs> glad that there are people that make sandwiches for us rather than, you know, letting people go to a steam table and assemble their own. Totally. <laughs> uh, there's another one that is a very common dish, uh, a mac and cheese, mm-hmm. that you even say in the head note, like, yeah, I know, not, we don't need another mac and cheese, but why do you present the caprese mac and cheese. So caprese mac and cheese is based on a caprese, mozzarella, tomato, olive oil, a little bit of garlic, basil. Um, and it was, this was inspired by a dish my mom used to make always in the summers, which was an uncooked tomato sauce. So when it was August, she would chop up a bunch of tomatoes, chop up a bunch of beautiful fresh mozzarella or tear it, great some garlic or chop up some garlic and dress that with olive oil. And she would just let it sit. No, we sort of like there throughout the afternoon while we were doing whatever we were doing. And then when it was time to eat, she would make pasta, pour that right into the bowl that had this uncooked, but at that point marinated tomatoes that had the, you know, some of the, that milky liquid that comes out of the mozzarella marrying together with the olive oil and the salt. And she would toss the pasta into it until the mozzarella would, start to melt and do that, you know, t- kind of telephone strand um, meltiness. And so, and I love that so much as a kid growing up. Um, and I wanted to take that idea, but um, transform it a little bit. So this is all of the same ingredients, but baked. Um, and it tastes so summery, whereas normal mac and cheese is like so gruyere and like cheddar and just super super heavy with breadcrumbs on top so this was sort of my (laughs) it's the lighter brighter summary because we need mac and cheese in the summer we shouldn't only have it in the winter yes that's denial why are why are we suffering agreed i'd love to see one of those little (laughs) pop-ups of you like vh1 used to do or a sticker on there say we all need mac and cheese yeah we really do and another dish uh, um you know, in France, there's the poulet de roti, where mm-hmm. you see the rotisserie chickens, you know, on the streets, not just like randomly on the streets, but dripping onto potatoes, yeah. and those potatoes baking the fat. The way you've constructed this by simply putting a chicken on a rack in an oven and letting it drip into a cast iron or potatoes. I mean, that's ingenious. Um, yeah, it's I, it, it was kind of amazing to me that it worked as well as it did, but it's ingenious and yet it's not because everything you're just saying, it's like built on this classic. I think it's got that appeal because you know that that's good, right? You know that a, a roasted chicken is delicious and you, you know that roasted potatoes with chicken fat is going to be good. Like it just seems like it's going to be good. Um, I just have a real problem with um you know how the underside of the roasted chicken just never gets brown enough it's like because it's in the juice yeah it's against the surface of the roasting pan and that trick of putting it on the rack i actually learned from the chef at daidue um butchery and and restaurant in um they're in austin i believe i'm going back this is like a hot 10 restaurant from a bunch of years ago and um that was the first time that i saw that you could just do it on the rack when we were shooting the book, um, our, my food stylist, Susie Theodoro 
was was like, Carla, are you sure you want me to put this chicken directly on the rack? Isn't your oven going to smell like chicken forevermore? And I was like, just put the chicken on the rack. <laughs> You're saying that like it's a bad thing. I was like, yeah. it works. It's going to be fine. I'm like, yeah, a little bit of chicken skin stuck to the rack of the oven. But, you know, those oven racks are heat conducting. They get really hot. They Air can pass through them. It works a lot like um, roasting on a perforated pan which is something probably in restaurants that you did too but without like a v-shaped roaster pan that you put your turkey in then you put into a roasting pan that's got the high walls that's actually um, shielding the direct heat from hitting the sides of the chicken so this way it just goes all the way around and then you have a bunch of yukon gold potatoes underneath and they end up in chicken gravy it's interesting to hear that you learned that technique or saw that technique from a chef down in texas Mm -hmm. but it feels like what you can do in this cookbook uh, is get away from the constrictions of working in restaurants Mm -hmm. because you know as a chef you're expected to do something one way whether or not it's through you know traditional methods or foundational techniques or the department of health right Um, (laughs) but it's nice to be able to you know, think outside again of those constraints and and have the freedom to experiment. I think one of the great things about working at Bon Appetit for seven years has been working with a lot of amazing professional chefs who do really cool things in their restaurant. But the job of the test kitchen is to take the nuggets of like genius and translate that to the home because we are a magazine for home cooks. So that's the skill. That's one of the things I've learned so much from the people that I work with is, is being able to report to the essence of like, why is that cool? Or what makes that delicious? And the first time you talk to a chef about it, there's like 12 different reasons why something is incredible. Um, and our job is to figure out like, no, but what's the one thing that like really makes this and how can we replicate that so that people try something new? I I see you do that transference of the the way you sear scallops with brown butter or hazelnuts chives um you also do with these buttery beets and grapefruit mm-hmm. uh why yeah that was really actually an experiment i liked the idea of it so the dish that you're talking about the buttery um the buttery beets with the grapefruit i really i don't love eating raw beets but i also don't love super soft over like super cooked all the way through beets or something about that silkiness that's kind of like a little squidgy to me so I was trying to figure out how to get char on a beet without having that very raw kind of um, almost iodine way that a raw beet kind of sits on your tongue and dries it out um, and so I sort of was just experimenting and sear just seared them so that's one of those things going back to the basic technique of pan roasting which I would had done a thousand times to scallops And like, I don't know, I'm just going to see what happens. Um, And so I put the, cut the beets, put them, you know, cut side down and a little bit of oil and just let them go. So you get a very charred, um, not only texture, but the flavor of a charred beet at the surface. It's more cooked right directly below that surface. And then as you get towards the outside of the, of the wedge that was, you know, exposed to the air the whole time, it's like a little bit crunchy. So it also seemed like a sort of efficient way to get a lot of textures without doing a lot of work. Um, And sometimes it just comes back to laziness. Like, I'm just going to let those, (laughs) you know, like I really like at home cooking, starting something on the stove 
and then figuring out what the rest of the things are going to be. So the beets can like sit there and char and not have to be turned. And while they're cooking, I'm like segmenting the grapefruit and, you know, getting the herbs together and sort of scrummaging around for what are the other things that are going to work in this dish. But then also beets and grapefruit, like I've had a million beet avocado grapefruit salad. So I knew those would go together. Yeah, I was just kind of playing around. Later on in the book, there's a Sunday soups and brothy beans section. And I find this fascinating because it's split kind of into the traditional. You have your passavajo, you have your little iteration of green astroni. Mm-hmm. But then it becomes both, I don't know, experiential and conceptual. Uh, I want you to talk about two dishes. And mm-hmm. one is the yogi's kachari. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the fresh corn and corn broth with popcorn. Right. These are very close to my heart. So the, it's kich- the kichari um, is a um, an Indian v- comfort food that's based on mung beans and rice. And it's basically, you know, I don't want to say gruel, although I am trying to rehabilitate the word gruel. We, we I think, all love a good porridge. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. yeah, I just feel like gruel, porridge has already had its moment to like be, you know, get a new marketing spin on it, but like gruel. <laughs> you just need a couple children to yeah. name gruel. Exactly. And it hip and oh then, yeah. That's yeah. a good point. Gruel Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so this was something that I was introduced to through an Ayurvedic um, workshop that I did where they, you eat the same thing every day for for five days. And the thing that you eat every day for five days is kichri. And it's supposed to sort of calm down not only your digestive system, but your nervous system too, because something happens when you eat the same thing every day. If you're wired like me and you stop thinking about what you're going to eat, it's like that whole, all of that noise goes away. Um, and so it's mung beans and rice and some um, vegetables, a lot of dry spice, mustard, seed, ginger, And then it gets topped at the end with bloomed, you heat up oil and pop some mustard seeds and add um, dry spice to that and then spoon that over the top of the soup. And so it was something that I was introduced to through, you know, it's one of the few that wasn't restaurant background and it wasn't a family recipe, but it became this um, incredibly powerful comfort food for me from doing from doing this Ayurvedic cleanse and then incorporating it whenever we didn't someone didn't feel well or was recovering from a sickness or just needed to be comforted or you know getting back from a cold or whatever it was you we would make a batch of kichri um and I really was worried about putting it in the book because it is brown town and this is like something we talk about sometimes at work when there's a recipe that's like, it's delicious, but it's brown town and it's going to be hard to shoot. So I was like, oh, I love the kichri. I really want it to be in the book. It's like something I've been making for probably 12 years. Um, and I was like, it's going to be hard to shoot. And Marty and Andrea, Andrea Gentle and Hires, who shot the book, put some magic light on it and we put it in a special yellow bowl and it was all like reflective and sunsetty and it worked out. <laughs> it worked out. I was like, it looks, it's never looked better. Yeah. It's kind of incredible. It's nice to delegate those skills. Totally. To but it's else. like, you've had the Italian dish, like pasta and lentils, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I've had versions of split pea soup here at Roberta's that I'm like, that's bold. Mm-hmm. Like that's a bowl of green but it's delicious you know um let's talk about a bowl of popcorn i mean how did you transform this too 
So this actually was because I just couldn't put what I wanted to put in the book, which is my favorite recipe for popcorn. I've now put it's on basically.com. So if you, you want to get it, you can get it there. But I've been making this popcorn mix um, for my popcorn for a long time, which is nutritional yeast and Aleppo pepper, salt and pepper, and then whatever oil I pop the popcorn in. And I'm obsessed with that seasoning mix. Um, and I was like, I'm not going to put a bowl of popcorn in the book. It's just like, doesn't really fit in. But, um, but so I just tried it with fresh corn. It was like, well, it was good with popcorn. So let's try it with corn corn. Um, and so I made like a light corn stock broth, cooked the fresh corn in that, and then topped the whole thing with, there's also, um, don't forget the corn nuts for the crunch. I will never. <laughs> and it, there are so many other things I'd love to talk about today. Uh, I will point out that one of my favorite things is um, that you call people who make galettes, uh, galette people. Yeah. And we should all be one of those. Yeah, get in the club. But this book is, is so genius on so many levels. And it makes me think of that um, Peter Sellers movie, Dr. Strangelove, if only for the subtitle, to stop worrying and love the bomb and said, here, you get to stop worrying and Love to cook again. So thank you for bringing us back to where cooking begins. Thank uh, you. Available anywhere books are sold. And please follow Carla on all her wonderful exploits on Bon Appetit, Healthy-ish, Basically Epicurious. And um, yeah, just looking very forward to digging in. Thank you so much. Excellent. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsor, Worldwide Soba, Music by Cookies, Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.